and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Uh, before we get started, I want to be sure to uh, remind you all to follow us on our social media pages where we have lots of great updates on the show and some of uh, the events that we're involved in outside of the studio. So be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Women to Watch Talk. And as always, you can uh, see our Really wonderful lineup that we have scheduled through September at this point at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. And lastly, um, love for you to call into the show and, and join the conversation. Uh, I'm really excited about today's show. We're going to have some fun. And if you're listening and you'd like to speak with my guest, feel free to call 888 329 That's 888 888- Three two nine thirty three oh six. So this afternoon, I am first of all thrilled that my guest is sitting across the table from me. So we are live in the studio, and she's flown all the way from Chicago to be with us. Her name is Nicole Loftus, and Nicole is the uh, founder of past founder. Well. She's still the founder of Zorch, founder and CEO of Hit Big, and Skin in the Game. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this all week. Yeah, yeah. all week? Good. Yes. <laughs> um, and I know you're in town. You have business here in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, always something to do in Philly. And then you're off to New York. Yes, right after this. And then you circle back to Chicago. Uh, yes, eventually. Okay. I'll get home. You'll get home <laughs> safe and sound, I hope. Um, so let's start off. Um, I'd love to talk about your growing up years in Chicago. And one of the things that um, you and I spoke about in a pre-interview call was that um, you grew up in an Italian family, Mm -hmm. uh, which I can relate to, um, with the expectation to marry, stay at home, and have babies. Exactly. Which sounds so very old-fashioned, right? It does sound old-fashioned, Yeah, but tell me a little bit about, you know, uh, your family and and a little bit about that messaging and, and what you did with that. Yeah, I um, my family is a small family. I was an only child up until I was eight years old, and um, but my it's a small, immediate family. But I have an extended, like many Italians, we went to grandma's on Sunday, and so my cousins on my father's side uh, quickly became much like siblings to me. And so my aunts and uncles and grandparents were so influential on me, and uh, that close knit um, experience, I think. Children see and hear more than you think they do. So when they're around a lot of people, that's a lot of information going at them. And so I remember hearing as a young girl uh, my aunts talking about, well, she's never going to find a husband if fill in the blank. Or, well, she's pretty, so she'll she'll find a husband, no problem. And that was always the goal and the purpose. And the purpose of finding the husband was to have children and be a good mother. And, you know, I 
remember going to Sunday dinners when I started dating, and my grandmother would say, Nicole, go make Jimmy's plate. Go go get him a oh plate. I'm like, God, oh, my goodness. And I think about that now. I'm like, oh, <laughs> Lord. But she was always watching us to see who was going to be the right, the good wife and the good mother. And, you know, so when you're programmed from being so young by all these people you hear from, um, and it was a lovely upbringing. It was wonderful to have all these cousins and, and family around all the time. But yeah. uh, I know now, and at the time you didn't know it. You know, I didn't know it until my whole life came falling apart that that was what I was trained to do. And now I needed, you know, I got to a point where that didn't work out exactly the way I thought it would. Yeah, well, but it comes from a place of love, right? Oh, without a doubt. Yes, yes. it does. And talk about wonderful mothers and wives. And, you know, they took their purpose very seriously and they were committed and their whole life is about their children and um, and about each other. And, and so there was definitely from a place of love because they were raised in a way that they never thought a woman could do anything else. And right. um, so it was uh, very interesting. Yeah. So, well, ironically, because you, you, you know, you're, we'll talk about your businesses and the success that you've had mm-hmm. over the years, but ironically, you know, in relation to what we're talking about, you were engaged at age 19. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, I so. had serious boy, my, I hit high school at 14 and by October I had a serious boyfriend and uh, that lasted throughout almost all of high school. And then college, serious boyfriend, 19 gives me a ring to, you know, lock it up. And uh, that didn't work out, thank God. I mean, wonderful guy, but right. I was way too, too young. way too young, yeah. and yeah. didn't know anything. But I knew that I was madly in love. You know, those high school loves are just incredible. Oh, yeah, oh right. so much fun. I yeah. wouldn't, you know. Um, but that one broke up, and I went off to France to go to school, and um, again enjoyed school. But my whole purpose was still not, you know, I was going to school to have fun and explore the world and, and see interesting things, but. Um, yeah, the engagement at 19, my parents were very upset about. They, they knew that it was way too young. Oh, they, no, that was my question. You know, were they supportive because, you know, again, their their focus was, you know, getting Nicole married and having her yes. settled down, no, but they, not at that age. Not at that age. They right. knew that was entirely too young. Right. Yes, and my boyfriend was, you know, he had no plan and, and you know, what to do with our lives, and we didn't even think we'd get married right away. It was just, you know, put a ring on it was the Yeah. And he was Italian. He was Italian, and he was raised a certain way, and we did it on the QT. We did it without anyone even knowing about it. And then his father found oh, the receipt wow. for the ring. It was hilarious. Oh and he's gosh. like, oh, my gosh, Nicole's pregnant. And he's like, oh, slow down. No, no, no. We're just madly in love. We can't live oh without each other. Where did he get other. the ring? I want to know where the ring he came from. He went to the jewelry store and bought it with his own like money at that the he mall made. Or? Yeah, the yeah. jewelry store. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. It's so funny. So, you know, I when I think about that, I, I wonder if, if subliminal messages were, were going on in your head, but at the same time, you had bigger aspirations. Oh, you know, we, we spoke before the show, and you're someone with great curiosity and really wanting to know and learn as much as you can. Mm-hmm. So um, tell me about what precipitated the uh, the trip to France. How did that come about? And was that, in your mind, a way to really kind of get away from um, you know, life at home in Chicago where, you know, your thoughts were about marriage and, and babies and really kind of change the trajectory. Yeah. Well, I always knew, even when I was very young, I always knew that uh, there was something more and I wanted more. You you know, I think it's interesting to ask people what movies they liked when they were 8 and when they were 12 and when they were 15. And um, I re- always remember characters would resonate with me that had – um, these big lives and did exciting things and um, had an impact on the world. And I look back on those movies and I'm like, oh my gosh, that I knew 
that I was drawn to that. But then there was this, well, I guess that just won't be my life, and that's okay. I'll, I'll be curious about other things. I'll be the best mom I can be. And I remember when I first was married, I'm jumping around here, but when I was first married, I kept thinking about business ideas that would allow me to work while I could also stay home with my children. So I'd come up with some um, a way to have administrative assistants all working together remotely. And I was thinking, oh, I'll go be a physical trainer. I'll go be a personal trainer. And uh, so it was that curiosity you ask about, it was always there. And, um, but I, you know, when it's ingrained in you that deeply, it's so hard to take it out. I mean, it took a lot of work to, um, to realize it wasn't just a dream. It was something I could actually take action about. Yeah. Let's go back for a second. Tell me what kind of activities and things were you involved in in high school? You went to, uh, I understand, a parochial uh, elementary and then a public yeah. high school. Oh, my, my, uh, the school I went to from first through eighth grade was so, uh, amazing. It was, um, had a very strong program for music and um, performances. So every student had to participate in the choir and had to get on a stage and sing and dance in front of the audience. There was no choice. Uh, there was one choice. A lot of the guys, if they didn't want to do it, they can go work the lights or they could, you know, work. But you got to have stage but crew. But you got to have a stage crew. And so everyone was a part of it. It was wonderful. But that taught me such uh, guts from a young age to just stand up there and play the piano in front of everyone and belt out a song and not be afraid. It was just something we did. It wasn't like you thought of it as anything special. So that was fun for me, um, and it really shaped my comfort with uh, getting on a stage or talking to a large that's group of great. people. It is. That's I th- really and That's wonderful. why it makes me worried that arts in the school is going to be um, less and less important. I think it becomes more and more important as we become – um, we have so much technology around us. I, I think that uh, needing to have that comfort with personal interactions and being on a stage with an audience is more important than ever. And exploring your art form is important too. Well, that's right, and we know we both know that technology requires creativity oh, just as much. Every bit of every work every you bit. do, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you graduated high school, and, and what was next? I went to a state school, Illinois State University. Again, I was uh, I worked. From the time I was 14, I started working at McDonald's, and I worked all through high school and college. Um, And again, college was more about just checking a box and saying I went to school. And my family, one of my aunts, would always say she's going to school to get her MRS degree, Mrs. (laughs) uh, But at that point, I'd already had my boyfriend I thought I was going to marry when I went to school. But um, Been there, done that. Yeah, (laughs) you really? Yeah. I, uh, ISU was a state school, um, great school. It was fine. And then I went there for uh, four years. Again, went to the University of Grenoble, France, for a semester, and that was a great experience. And that, was that a um, study abroad through the yes, school? Yes, mm-hmm, through okay. the school. And, wow, life-changing experience. I recommend it to anyone. It was what wonderful. Was, yeah, well, tell me what you really took away from that trip. Oh, what was gosh. the greatest lesson? The greatest lesson was how uh, small our w- little world is here, you know, and yeah. realizing that um, – all the different cultures and being having empathy for different types of people. I think one of the reasons I'm so um, I so embrace diversity in every form is that I traveled enough to go see the different cultures and different lifestyles and and uh, people who spoke different languages and yeah. um, it was uh, profound. It was incredible. Yeah. Now, when you came back from that trip, um, was your next job with the Chicago Apparel Center? Yeah. So okay. my mother had worked at the Chicago Apparel Center. She had a showroom and um, sold a clothing. And I always worked there over summers and, and whenever I could to make money. And the Chicago Apparel Center ran fashion shows, so I worked for the fashion director dressing for uh, the shows. And 
Um, so I had cut my teeth basically in the apparel industry. Mm-hmm. I went into the bathroom one day and saw an ad posted for a job at Levi Strauss, who mm-hmm. was working in the office. I applied, got the job, and that was a major milestone for me, a real life changer. I had some incredible bosses there that really mentored me and pushed me to be better at my job. And I took great for someone who was raised to be a mother and a wife, I always had a good work ethic and took pride in stamping my name on my work uh, so that um, I moved up pretty quickly within Levi's. And um, then I met uh, my husband when I was 23, and I was working at Levi's. And um, at Levi's they said, you have to uh, – we want to move you up, but you have to go to headquarters in San Francisco. Oh, like, I was going to ask you if their headquarters was in Chicago. Yeah, I wasn't no, sure. okay. no. And that was just like, what are you, crazy? I got to go to Scramble's for Sunday dinner. I can't go to San Francisco. <laughs> I can't miss nuts. the Italian No one in my on family ever moved out of Chicago, ever. You know, it was like, <laughs> we had one cousin that moved, and we had they have like family meetings, and it was like a big all-out war, and... <laughs> We didn't know why is she leaving. I'd have to take a vote if oh, you were allowed to go. It was such a disaster. And yeah. to this day, she's still one of the only ones that ever left. And um, everyone lives within blocks of each other. It's just I, That's it's so dis- nice. Oh, it's nice or it's dysfunction junction. I don't it's, know which well, one I, it is. I, I can't help but think of my big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> it is. That much movie, like that, yes. You know, it's Greek, but it's all the same. Yes. It's all the same. Um, so I'm going to go right to, to 2002. You know, you yeah. you learned a lot about business and, and brands and, right, what Levi's, makes... Levi's, I learned so much about brands. Yeah. I, well, f- actually, tell me, you know, what you learned the value of a brand. Was it about the storytelling? You know, tell me what you learned um, working for Levi that really you thought is so important for a brand yeah. to be focused on. Well, that was back in the day when Levi's wasn't sold at Sears and Kmart. It was, um, we had to monitor, retailers had to monitor how many people were buying each pair of jeans because people were smuggling them out of the country. I mean, that was, it was the iconic American brand. And that was when I learned the how a brand can have equity in it and how that equity should be protected and how important it is that the name and a brand. And then we, I was also there for the Dockers launch, which was fascinating to watch how this master brand, Levi Strauss, could launch Dockers brand and business casual. I'm dating myself now. But, I mean, that was the day. So I saw that the importance of a brand and why it should be protected and why you shouldn't um, be too loose with it because you could dilute that equity if you – use it in the wrong way or if you extend it too far, too fast. And um, so that was when I learned that about um, branding and what that all means. Yeah. Was there anybody at that particular company that kind of took you under their wing? Oh, gosh, yes. Michael Gaddy was my first uh, boss, and to this day we're good friends. And he um, would kick my butt and uh, challenge me often. And uh, he'd call me into his office, and he'd be playing country music and say, now listen to these lyrics. And I remember, oh, gosh, Michael, you know, <laughs> i got to get back to work. And uh, But he'd, I'd show up late, and he'd say, you know, it's it, you got to be here at 830. Not, and I'd say, oh, look, I'm here at 830. He's like, what, do you want a cookie? That's when you're supposed to be here. You come here at 730, then I'll give you a, a pat in the back. You stay late. Yeah, okay, so yeah. he um, taught me some of those basic things that I see so many young people that just don't have when they come to start work with me and other elsewhere. They just don't have that basic, those soft skills, as well as that basic, here's what's expected of you. That's the baseline. Not, don't get You don't get recognized for being at the baseline. You've yeah. got to go beyond, way beyond, before I'm going to 
pat you on the back and acknowledge that you showed up for your yeah. paycheck today. Right. Well, that's that's good good advice, and it's a good you know it's a good learning uh, for someone who's in the learning curve to to understand that you really have to kind of raise your hand and go above and beyond to get yeah, noticed. Absolutely. For other opportunities, um, we actually have a caller on oh. the line. Uh, his name is Tom. Tom, welcome to the show. Okay, I guess not. Well, maybe he'll call back. <laughs> maybe he'll call back. Um, okay, so I want to get to 2002, and this to me says a lot about you and, and your, again, your curiosity and your seeing a problem and wanting to fix it. Yeah. Um, so you saw a need for improvement really in the advertising industry, yeah. and um, you founded Zorch. I did. First, I'm going to ask you the name. Yes. Why the name Zorch? I can't take credit for it. I engaged, I scrounged up a couple thousand dollars and I engaged a branding agency uh, that is no longer, otherwise I would plug them. Uh, but they uh, came up with the name, a hundred names, and they said this was their favorite. And I hated it. I'm like, I can't say this is Nicole from Zorch. It's a weird name. But it came from the tech sector. And it means to travel from uh, one side to another with light speed. The company was first called uh, the Bridge Group because we bridged the gap between manufacturer and end user. We cut out the middleman and we created a bridge, which I, when I found out quickly on that every, there's a lot of bridge this, bridge that, I said, you know what, we need a whole new name that is something like no one's ever heard before. So anyway, the agency came up with this name, so I can't take credit for it. You but can. people love it. Our clients started saying, well, can't we just Zorch it? And we, used to have, we still have parties for our suppliers when they get Zorched, when they've reached certain criteria. We have Zorchos and Zorchettes. We had... We definitely had fun with the name. And the company is still going oh, and thriving. Oh, yes, going very yeah. well, thriving, yes. Okay, mm -hmm. t I want to know where you got the courage to launch a company um, in the midst of bigger, well-known, successful companies out there doing the same thing. Yeah. That's I, really a, a risk to I do that. Never, I never thought that I had a choice. I never saw it as um, I should stop. It was always I must do this. And I think that's when I um, people ask, well, what do I look for in a good investment? I think a business where the founder was in the industry, saw the problem, and then is obsessed with fixing that problem. Because that was me, and that's the case with so many other very successful businesses, is that you know the leadership team had the experience and that they could pull it off. So I was in the promotional products industry working for what is now Staples and saw that I loved this industry, but we were not using technology in the way it could be. And I said, I need to go off and find a better model. No idea what it would look like. No idea how it would look, but I left. And um, it wasn't easy because my husband at the time said, you've got to still work. You can't just quit your job. Right. So I was working full time and then consulting uh, to make some money. And then on my, you know, my third job was building this business. It was crazy. And yeah. then finally... Um, and then my marriage happened to fall apart, and okay. uh, one of my invest, one of uh, someone, one of my advisors said, "I'm going to give you money so you can quit and do this full time because this is too big a deal." That's what was my next question. How were you funded? Yeah. yeah. So I, um, one of my angel investors, uh, a guy named Tom Guinan, who was a professor at Elmhurst College and uh, was a CTO in another company, saw that this market was. Um, a $20 billion space, and no one had disrupted it yet in any way with technology. And he said, this thing has legs. This is for real. You have to do this. And I said, well, don't tell me something I don't know. I, I'm going to do it. I yeah, just yeah. And so he was some, one of the first angel investors, and then there were other angel investors that came along and believed in us. And I built it in three years to $22 million, uh, the eighth fastest growing company in the country, without raising any institutional capital. It wasn't wow. until after that 
that we um, ended up raising money from VCs, and that was when you know all hell broke loose. But it was um, it was incredible. It was the time of my life. It was life changing. Yeah. Can you describe for me more specifically the model? Like, what exactly was it? How was it different? It um, so in the industry, you want to buy a pens, shirts, mugs, hats. Right. You're going to buy them from a middleman distributor who mm-hmm. is then going to go buy the pens, for example, from Big Pens. Okay. Well, what I did, um, which has never been done before, is I said, well, Big Pens, you have incredible infrastructure, customer service teams, warehouses that you could eat off the floors. You're, you know, you have this inc- all this infrastructure. Why would I get my own warehouse? Why would I hire my own customer service team? Can I use your Resources and just basically create this bridge, if you will, that connects big pens with my clients at Citigroup and State Farm and AT and T, and that's the model. We use technology, which you've seen this model before now so many times. It wasn't rocket science; it was just rocket science in that we applied it to an industry that had never done this before. Okay, yeah, and it was a very antiquated industry. But I've seen this with other entrepreneurs that they think you know leadership means you have to lead your employees, but in most disruptive or innovative businesses, you have to evangelize not only people in your headquarters, but I had to lead a team to trust that we were doing something with purpose that had never been done before and it was going to be worth it. Then I still had suppliers like Big Pens who were risking it all to to say, okay, I believe in this chick who has this idea. I had to go look them in the eye and say, come on, let's do this. It's going to work, and it's going to make everyone's experience better, and it did. And without any track record, really, right? You weren't presenting with them years of experience in doing something. But that was the other um, big decision I made that I recommend everyone, too, is that I chose to build it, to sell it first before I really had built it. I knew what it would look like, but then I went out and closed Fortune 200 deals because I knew, although I had no track record, to your point, if I'm going to go into BIC, I better come with some major clients, some revenue. So it would be worth it for them to take the risk. I mean, my advice, a lot of people were giving me advice saying, go for the base hits, you know, don't go for the grand slams, of course, a sports analogy, because it was men giving me advice. But um, (laughs) they were saying, don't go, why do you want to go for these big companies? Go get a nice little order. I'm like, get out of here. I'm going, I'm going for the moon. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Why Why not start there? And I knew if I'm going to disrupt an industry, I I need a tsunami-like amount of revenue to make it worth these people. And so I went cold called, you know, people I didn't even know me, but BP, AT&T, CNA, JP Morgan Chase. Did and you get no's before you got yeses? Uh, or was everyone right Sure, on there were no's, but I just said, I don't. I just want a uh, shot at your business. Let me be in the RFP. Let me just have a, uh, an opportunity. And um, I had a lot of help from Chicago. One other thing I did right that I always recommend is someone would say, oh, you should talk to Anna Belyaev. She's an entrepreneur in town. She might want to hear from you. And I would pick up the phone and call anyone that I heard I should call. And she'd say, oh, you should use the Chicagoland Entrepreneurial Center or you should call the Women's Business Development Center. There are resources in every single city for entrepreneurs to help you figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. And all of those organizations know people at the world's biggest organizations, right? right. And they're there to help you. And all it takes is picking up a phone and asking. And I did that out of naivete, really. I mean, I just didn't know any better. And I just, I figured, well, I'm doing this. So I better, what are they going to do? Hang up on me? They never hung up on me. They were always saying, well, let's meet for coffee. Or, you know, I'd write a handwritten note to Christy Hefner and say, thank you for being an inspiration to me as a woman or to Mayor Daly and say, thank you for what you've done. And each one of them reached out to me, ended up mentoring me. And um, I think there's a great book, Women Are Afraid to Ask. I think um, 
a lot of us are guilty of it, but just try those first phone calls, and it's so worth it, whether it's the big AT&Ts and city groups of the world or it's your mayor or a local organization. That's They're going to be there to help you. I think that's the best advice ever. Really? Yes. Good. Because, first of all, I've done that, right? You I, have. You wouldn't I, be here if well, you had Well, I think that what what it taught me was it doesn't matter whether you're reaching out to someone, you know, who's with AT&T or, you know, the local mom and pop. They're all people. Yes. And so you never know who you're going to get on the phone that might be interested in what you have to say. So yeah. why would you not ask? And, and when I ask and I get the meeting, I ask questions. You know, I'm there saying, I need help. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in human nature to say, someone needs help. I'd like to help them. I yeah. don't believe that humans, I'm a humanist. I think they want to, you know, we want to, we all want to help each other. Right. And as soon as I'd be a bit vulnerable and say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I need some help because I really yeah. believe in this. It's, oh, well, let me help you. I mean, That's it was right. just amazing. Yeah. I think one of the the things that holds people back from asking, somehow they think if they have to ask a question, then it's shedding light that they don't know something, mm-hmm. which is so silly when it you think is. about it, right? Yes. Because there's always more to learn. Right. We can always get better. Yes. Tell me what your leadership style is. <laughs> you know, tell me, you know, w- what works for you to motivate your team? Um, that's funny. I, uh, I'm a horrible manager. Like I think any of my employees, if they heard this, they would chuckle and laugh and say, yep, she's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> they might be listening. I think there's a difference in managing and leading. But yes. there are people who believed in me and would be that um, believed in the mission. And I think that's why you have to be a leader. Um, you're there to serve your employees. You're there to enable them to do great work. Um, I believe in leadership through service. But um, And I also knew that I couldn't come to work every day. For me, it's working seven days a week. And I just I have to be fully immersed in it and love it. If we, if I'm not doing something with purpose, like, or what are we really looking to accomplish? At Zorch, it was let's turn this industry on its head and make it better for everybody. And with my new business, it's let's build a better model for funding businesses. I can't be that person that goes to work every day without that big mission, and I can't lead anyone if they don't see it coming out of my pore. I mean, just like you know, I live and breathe it. Um, so that's my leadership style is just showing. The passion. That passion, exactly. Yeah. And and being exposing them to um, my work ethic. Like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna tow this I'm gonna pull this boat as as much as I can, as often as I can every day. And um, I've got you and I'm gonna I'm, we're gonna do it together. And then I know that was important and I've heard that feedback from so many of my employees who um, my team members who left and went somewhere else. You know, I've got a lot of letters, a lot of phone calls from people who said, man, I had no idea how exciting it was to be there with you during mm-hmm. that time and that they're still looking for that. And I'm like, shoot, why aren't more people leading that way? I don't yeah. understand it. But they knew that I was a horrible manager. I mean, I had made pe- someone cry once a day. And then when they start crying, I'm like, I don't know what to do with her. What? I'm like, you know, I'm not going to rub you on the back and say it's going to be okay. Go down the hall and get your cry out and, and let's move on. But um, And I'm not proud of that at all. I, I, I want to work on that. In my new business, I'm structuring it so that I'm insulated from everyone. So that, in, a, in a way, in a good way, where I can't make people cry. And um, That's not a good, yeah, no, but a good that, way to No, but you know, I'm so fair and I will go above and beyond for any of my employees and they know that so they know that when I do make a mistake like well that's Nicole you know she's she's a good human being at the end of the day well sometimes I think you know we all know that at the end of the day when you when you're the people who work for you are as excited as you are about what you're doing yes then they work to their highest potential Mm -hmm. and everyone wins right yes so what we could only afford to hire entry-level people 
and um, people who had never done what we were doing before. And it was like, okay, we're going to all fig- learn together, train together. And where were times when we'd be sitting around a table in uh, our office and we'd just be trying to figure out how do we get this order to a client at AT&T, and um, they learned. Then they ra- the bar was raised for them, and they rose to that expectation. They rose to it every single day, and um, it was amazing to watch. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. When we come back, I want to go to 2013 when you stepped down from Zorch and decided to launch your okay, current business. We will be right back. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to an- announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more. All available at womentowatch.net and our own website. FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at FoleyHillsleyGroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to FoleyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F O L E Y H I L L S L EY group.com or call 610-238-6636. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. I'm pleased to announce the opening of the region's newest, most innovative gynecology practice in the Philadelphia area, Montgomery Gynecology. Led by Dr. Hima Janogada in a welcoming boutique-style setting, she and her team are committed to providing the highest standard of cutting-edge care without losing the personal touch that is so very important in today's world. With a particular interest in minimally invasive surgical options, Dr. Hema completed advanced training in robotic surgery and is one of only two surgeons in Montgomery County who performs this highly specialized single-site robotic surgery. For more information on the opening of this exciting new practice in the convenient Plymouth Meeting location, go to www.montgomerygyn.com or call 215 444 3411. 
That's MontgomeryGYN.com or call 215-444-3411 to make an appointment today. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Nicole Loftus. And Nicole Loftus is the founder of Zorch and also founder and CEO of Hit Big and Skin in the Game. Um, so let's get right into um, your decision to step down from Zorch mm-hmm. in 2013 and um, to go after a brand new idea and a brand yeah. new business. What precipitated that decision? Well, just like Zorch, I was um, I had seen a problem and I just had to solve it. Um, the same thing happened with Skin in the Game. I was uh, living in the problem and couldn't imagine not fixing the problem. So the problem was uh, Zorch had become a huge success. We were profitable, hit $22 million in three years. And, um, That's I had, remarkable, by and, the way. Thank three you. Years. Thanks. Yeah. We were the eighth fastest growing company in the country. Wow. And the, what I'm most proud of is that it's a model that worked, and it showed that uh, the experiences are better and that you know it, it's uh, still a model I, I believe in. And um, But I had all this help to build that company, but when it came time to raising institutional capital, meaning from venture capital funds, I didn't have... Uh, good advice, or I wasn't listening. I don't really remember what the problem was. I think I was just so busy running my company that it seemed like, okay, yep, time to time to raise some real money to build the technology out. And I took one of the first term sheets that came across my desk, and I did not do any research uh, as to what is this fund, who's behind the fund, uh, what other businesses have they funded. I did not interview any of their portfolio companies. And, you know, hint, hint to your listeners, these are all the things I'm suggesting, I'm begging you to do before you take a dollar from a VC. Because um, that company, that firm, had better be a perfect match with your business. For example, at Zorch, we were turning a $20 billion industry on its head using technology. Yet the fund I took money from was a very small fund. They'd never done anything in spaces this big. They had never done anything um, disruptive before or anything in tech before. I was like, what was I thinking? I was, were you referred to? The, how did you find they, this particular firm? Well, we were, after the Inc. 500, the number eight on the Inc. 500, we were being called like crazy by all different people. So okay. there was a line out the door, and they were just one of the first ones that showed up. And okay. I thought, well, let me just get the money in the bank so I can move on to running my business. It seemed as a, you know, I didn't realize how important it was. And shame on me. I mean, it was just such a... A big mistake. And, um, and a big lesson learned. Oh, my gosh, huge yeah. lesson learned. And the other lesson, too, was that I then allowed my attorneys to um, represent me in the structuring of their security. And so when they invested and they um, set up the very first security, the way they'd set it up was so that they would have first right to all future investments, uh, voting rights, liquidation preferences. These are all terms that every one of your listeners who's an entrepreneur that raises needs to raise VC money, please make sure you understand what all of that means and what that will mean to your business over the next 10, 15, 20 years because that's how long they'll be involved. Mm. And whenever we tried to raise additional money, I'd have people say, I'd love to invest in your business, Nicole, but the way your first investor set this up, no one's going to want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. So that gave them uh, control much sooner than they should have gotten it. Voting rights, they were forcing me to hire people that I didn't think we should hire, forcing me to um, 
make decisions. You know, we had some problems with technology, and I said, we need to go this way. And they'd say, no, we're going to go that way, and too bad. And so that was when I realized I have, I'm not running my business. I have no control. And there were things I did early on in my company, like um, didn't pay myself well, and um, because I figured I'd rather hire three employees than pay myself. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, okay, well, I need to borrow $1,000 from the company, or you know, I'd park it somewhere on the balance sheet as a loan, or I'd sign personal for everything. You know, it, we had we were nobody, so I had to sign personal for every vendor, whether it was our copier or our T-shirt vendor. You know, it was big. Yeah. And for loans, and then when these venture capitalists came along, they said, well, you signed personal for it. You know, that's your problem, not ours. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a company problem. So please beware, anyone listening, that this is, you know, a big problem. So when I realized I no longer had control of my business, I um, was at a point where I had been mentoring a lot of other entrepreneurs. I felt so blessed by the city of Chicago and others that I thought I better give something back or something, you know, a piano is going to fall on my head. So I better. <laughs> and I just, I found the whole process of entrepreneurship, again, that curiosity we were talking about. I was just curious about how it all works. And then I started realizing, oh, no. My experience with venture capitalists is very much the same, and I realized that the venture capital model, is as wonderful as it is, it is. You know, we couldn't live without it, right? There, there's 59 billion dollars invested in businesses through the VC model every year, um, and I think one billion of it goes to women entrepreneurs. So if that doesn't tell you how messed wow. up that is, yeah. but um, so 59 billion. There's wonderful businesses, things we all use every day, innovations that save lives and change lives and make everything better thanks to VC money. Great. Having said that, their success rate is so poor, and the um, the efficiency. There's no efficiency in how they make investments. But then you look geographically. It's you know the concentration of VC money is all in Silicon Valley. And look at a map. I'll I'll put a map up on Twitter. But so it's broken. And I learned this during Zorch. I thought my I hope my experience is um, a one-off. And then I realized, oh no, it's not a one-off. It's all over the country, all types of businesses. And then I said, well, this is a model like Monofix. If I've built a better model for selling. T-shirts, pens, and hats, darn it, I can go build a better model for funding businesses. And that's when I announced to my board that I wanted to step down. Let's bring in a new CEO to run the company. They were planning to sell the company anyway, which is public knowledge now. But um, they, uh, and so they took over four years ago, and um, I stepped away and locked myself up in my spare bedroom like I did with Zorch and started over with a big wall ready to put whiteboards up and say, let me start mapping out an idea. And I had no idea how I was going to fix the VC model and get better funding for entrepreneurs. I was starting from scratch with a blank piece of paper. Was there only one model when you when you talk about the model, you know, for No, there's there's so many different models. I mean, you know, people raise money through angels right. and they raise money through incubators and I'm making very broad stroke statements here. I acknowledge yeah. that, right? Yeah. There's uh, but the traditional venture capital model when you, you know, I I've gone to classes where they teach people how to be angel investors and how to be VCs. And it's funny, they teach you, you know, Invest in young people who don't have responsibilities because they can then, because then you can afford to not pay them. You're like you know, I've I've seen the curriculum, and it's so I think that's fair to say there is a model, there is a way that you teach people how to invest in businesses, and that's the model I'm referring to is that way of business that is um, 
limiting, I think, in many ways. And and if I, you know, crowdfunding started a few years ago. Uh, Kickstarter is doing something mm-hmm. really interesting. Granted, it's not equity, but there's a lot of different models out there happening, mm-hmm. and um, which tells me others are realizing there's a problem here. I'm excited to be in a crowded space because we're all learning from each other. And at the end of the day, the more businesses we get funded, the more jobs we create. Everyone, if, if you buy food and put food on your table, if you buy gasoline and diapers and um, need to put your kids through school, you all you have skin in the game. That you, We all are in business together. We all need entrepreneurs to get funding for their innovations because um, the innovations impact the big corporations. If you work at a big company, you have skin in the game. If you work at a small business, you have skin in the game. There's not one of us that doesn't have it. So that was why I realized, okay, there's this has to happen for all of us, for our economy, and um, for us to keep things going. Yeah. So let's talk about the idea for the show. So okay. it's not, you know, it's not just kind of fixing the model of venture capitalism, but, you know, how can we do this and, and um, provide entertainment, you know, right. along with the inspiration well, and the, the show, funding? Yeah, the show became the fix for the model. So, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, it was um, the uh, – when I realized I, I really need to go out, I said there's a bucket of money somewhere that I need to get access to. And I was um, – when I was doing research, I had that wall of white paper and had no idea what was going to be putting on it. I went and heard President. Uh, were you? I'm sorry. Were you by yourself with the wall yes, of white? Okay, yes. So just with my dogs. A, me you and, and my your dogs. dogs and the wall and, and a, the white the, paper. A scary wall and a marker in my hand. <laughs> I'm trying to visualize this. this. Is, yes. And okay. then year, for the next three years, it looked like you know Carrie Matheson's wall in Homeland, where it's just crazy writing everywhere. You know, then it looked like I was insane. <laughs> but um, the right in the beginning, a friend said, "Let's go hear President Clinton speak." And of course, you know. You always want to go hear President Clinton speak. He's an amazing speaker. And I went and heard him at Chicago Ideas Week, and he starts talking. And everyone's listening and writing notes and very intently excited. And he says there's – he starts talking about jobs and how we can create jobs. And the way to create jobs is to get entrepreneurs more funding. I'm like, ooh, my ears perk up. Mm -hmm. And then he says, you know, there's $2.4 trillion sitting idle. Like I'm picturing a bucket of money that where I'm looking is for. It? Like where is it? Where is it? He said there's 2.4 trillion dollars sitting in the venture funds of the world's biggest corporations. And if someone, and I'm like always talking to me, if someone could just find a way to deploy that money, we could end unemployment and we could fund every innovation there is. And I, everyone else is like, oh, okay, you know, making notes. And I'm literally levitating out of my seat. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is <laughs> I found it. Eureka! Number? Where do I call? Eureka! So I yeah. rush home and start googling. You know, what is, corporate venture? What is this? Right. And then I realized he that something I didn't know, and I've said many times, I'm embarrassed to tell you I did not know that. UPS, Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola, Unilever, all these companies have been funding entrepreneurs for decades, and they are not telling these stories. And so I started um, thinking, well, if I could tell their stories, these are also the biggest advertisers in the world. Mm-hmm. And in my work at Zorch, I worked with the biggest advertisers in the world, and I'd ask them over dinner, you know, what's keeping you up at night? And they would say, well, Nicole, we got to humanize our brands. People think corporations are bad. And I would think, well, here's stories that make them look good. Yes. And they're not telling them. Yes. So I thought, okay, you know, so my the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. And I'm thinking, if I could turn their stories into advertising, maybe that two, I can get access to that bucket of money, that $2.4 trillion. Maybe they'll write more checks. And that was the whole, and the whole thing started. Um, I started cold calling again. Mm-hmm. Picked up, I went on LinkedIn and looked up, okay, who runs Verizon Ventures? 
a guy named Hung Free Chen at the time, who now is one of my greatest advisors, picked up the phone and answered. Yeah, I, I called. Love that. I know. It happens Do every it. time. Why not? Yeah. I looked up who runs Johnson & Johnson's venture fund, a guy named Brad Vale. One of my advisors said he picked up the phone. And I said, guys, why are you not telling your stories? I said, well, we'd love to tell our stories. No one's ever asked us to. I said, oh, my gosh. I don't understand. To me, I know. That, that, isn't that something you would be bragging about? Yes. Look at what we're doing as a corporation yes. to help entrepreneurs. Right. Right. That's just fascinating to me that they so were. So that was when I said, okay, I need to I, – so, so I, then I said, please hold. Called their advertising departments and said, can I tell your corporate venture stories? And I swear to you, 99% of them said, what's corporate venture? We have a venture fund? I had no idea. Wow. So I was like, okay. Let me put those two phones together. If we, I could, we turn, need to bridge something. Yes, here. <laughs> exactly. Again, I'm creating a bridge. The I mean, bridge. like, there's so many similarities between what I did at Zorch, and I feel like I'm cheating because it's really very similar. You're you're kind of connecting two pieces that exist, serving uh, the best intentions of both. Mm-hmm. So let's tell those stories, and now that becomes advertising. So then I said, well. Okay, if it's advertising, I need eyeballs. What's going to draw eyeballs? And that was when, holy smokes, I guess I'm in the entertainment business. Thankfully, I'm in Chicago, and thankfully, right time, right place. You know, I, my middle name is Providence, and for a reason, because Providence always steps in. It was there's always the right place at the right time for me. And um, Oprah Winfrey had just left Chicago to go to L.A., leaving 250 incredibly talented people from her show that chose to stay in Chicago. So mm. I was so blessed to have them all around me. And, of course, Christy Hefner, my advisor and mentor forever, uh, for many years. She's been very active. But it's like, okay, in this process. But now how do I build something that's really entertaining? And that was when two years of um, work in figuring out, researching what is going to be the best platform we can build that will be entertaining, draw as many demographics as possible, And then also researching how do we create a funding mechanism, to your point about all those different models, you know, what works? Let's look at the, should we partner with Kickstarter? Should we do, you know, how do we build a way so that a viewer could watch our show, look at businesses that are growing and innovative, and they can participate in the funding process? And let's democratize this venture capital uh, uh, source. Let's democratize venture capital. Um, and in the process, create a new model for it and get paid by advertising. You know, I don't want to make money off Susie Jones in Iowa makes a hundred dollar investment into our in, into a business. I don't want to take a dollar of that. That's right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the That's point is right. to fund businesses, not to start taking money out of that. We're yeah. going to make we will make plenty of money on advertising if we get plenty of eyeballs mm-hmm. and plenty of viewers. So that was why the entertainment piece had to work. So I never set out to build a TV show ever, yeah. but it was. Um, pretty obvious that we have the world's biggest advertisers in the world. Every one of them said, if you're going to do this, only do it on television. You know, there will be a big digital presence, but go for uh, network broadcast television. And that was how I ended up in here. So it's not at all where I expected to be, but it, yeah. I'm really it's excited. It's so exciting. I mean, it hasn't been that long. It's only been a couple of years. So mm-hmm. where are you today with the program? Yeah, we are, uh, while I'm talking, I have producers out um scouting two locations and they're also filming cameras are rolling to film a couple of stories great so we're getting that done i have an amazing team in uh, new york and chicago and uh, we have um, my legal team is the real rock stars they figured out a um, top secret way that we could take funding from our millions of viewers and get businesses funded and also allow those viewers to have skin in the game so i'm really excited to, okay. re- to announce that in a few months i'll come back and we'll tell them oh, definitely. We'll tell that story oh, we're gonna do updates yeah for sure, for sure. Yeah. And you can come to our studio and we'll we'll do updates. That would I be would a blast. That would be yeah. a blast. Um, 
And so, and we're, oh, it's so much fun to meet all these companies that are doing crazy things. There was a company that, um, and all of our businesses will be revenue positive, doing something that's never been done say, what's before. What's the criteria? So we're yeah, looking so for people that are listening. anyone listening. We're yeah. looking for businesses and go to skininthegame.tv. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an application out there. But we're looking for revenue positive companies. So meaning you have a proof of concept, you have customers. So we're not looking for very early. You know, I have an idea on a napkin, but you're running there's your a, is business. Is there a number, an amount? You no. To, okay. Mm-mm. No, okay. because it varies. And in your, if you're in healthcare, then there is no revenue positive number because we just uh, we found some amazing healthcare companies but of course there's no revenue in healthcare until you get your FDA approvals and you've gone through your testing okay. cycles mm-hmm. so um but revenue positive and a key differentiator in your space. Are you making your industry better? And you have to be innovative in some way. We're not looking for someone who's doing it the way everyone else does. Um, okay. One of the businesses I really wanted to tell but I uh, we missed our window. They've already had too much funding and they're doing great but a company called Modern Meadow in Brooklyn, they're growing fashion and furniture grade leather from stem cells without a single cow stem cells without a single animal being slaughtered. I mean, wow. I know. Yeah, that's a cool story. That's a great story. And there are so many businesses out there like that, and they're not being told on shows like Shark Tank or anything else. These are, there's a wonderful place for those inventors on those shows to tell their stories. We want to tell the stories of the businesses you don't hear about on TV very often. There's mm-hmm. a company that's creating mortar oil and lubricants from plants, and it's so clean that when you take the oil out of your car or your machinery, you throw it in a lake and it'll feed the fish. I mean, how crazy is that? Wow, yeah. But there's also businesses that, you know, we're not um, telling only stories that have a social impact because we believe that every company, if they are hiring and if mm-hmm. they are doing something innovative and creating an efficiency, then they have a social impact, yeah. right? Because they're that's true, right? Yes, because they are creating jobs, and then they're going to make jobs through the efficiencies they're creating. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the shows we're, stories we're filming now is a business that is um, helping large corporations by keeping employees happy and letting and running errands for them while they're at work. So her business uh, will go run um, your do, take your dog for a walk or they'll go take your car to the dealer or they'll do whatever they need to do for you so you could when you do get home you have less things to do well look at what her business is doing now for all those businesses that are dog walkers and dry cleaners like the ripple effect of these businesses is also what we're going to show and how um, one company affects many other companies and the economy right that's exactly right of course because that means they're hiring and that means you can then go buy food and gas and diapers yeah you know one of the questions I had for you with regard to entrepreneurship versus working for a major corporation. Mm -hmm. And there seems to me to be uh, definitely this resurgence of entrepreneurs. The millennials are all about creating the next great, you know, app or program. Where do you – and I'm not sure if this is something you've thought about, but kind of where do you see the future with more and more entrepreneurs and less people reaching (laughs) out to, you know, the major companies um, to go for that kind of nine-to-five – office job. Yeah. Well, where are we headed? Uh, that's a great question. And you know, speaking of millennials, the growest, the growest, the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs are baby boomers. People who now have their second career that they're going to start, which is pretty, I think, so yeah. awesome and exciting. It is. It is. But um, the, uh, you know, we are looking to our viewers and we want to use skin in the game to teach people about entrepreneurship. People watch Shark Tank or those other shows and they get so inspired and say, you know, now what do I do with this inspiration? So mm-hmm. we want to teach them, here's how you go start, run, fund your business. And um, 
And but not everyone is an entrepreneur. You know, we want to realize that sometimes you're better off being an investor and right. being what some people are calling intrapreneurs. You know, you go work at a company and you, you bring an entrepreneurial spirit to your work. Um, but you know, entrepreneurship I think is a lot harder than a lot of people think it is, and mm-hmm. we're not going to hide that fact. We want people to know that, and there's going to be assessments online that you know help people decide. Uh, for themselves, is this a path I want to take? But I don't see that there's um, there's so many businesses that we need to be building and so many jobs we need to create. I don't think there will ever be a problem. I, mean, I think the Fortune 500 employ like I think 29 million people, and um, there's a lot of people still looking for those jobs. So I don't think we'll ever have a shortage. Yeah. But I think the more people that uh, attempt to take up entrepreneurship, that means they're trying out different models for different industries, and things are going to get better. Mm-hmm. The um, you know, the short people uh, that are looking for work that their industry, like coal or other industries where it was so specific and their industry is now, you know, no longer active, can look to entrepreneurship and a small business ownership as a way to um, continue to thrive and do something new in their next chapter. And uh, that's why uh, I mentioned earlier about each city and has so many resources for entrepreneurs to learn how to start, run, fund your business and get you that funding that um, when we get our site up, we'll have a database where people can go look oh, up. Great. I'm in Atlanta. What's in here for me? I'm in Albuquerque. Who's here to help me? We really wanted to connect people with those resources because that's what made me an entrepreneur. It was not anything inside of me that just had to be. It was a lot of people and a lot of help, and that helps out there. And yeah. uh, I hope people will, will start digging around and picking up the phone and finding it. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. Something I want to mention to you before we run out of time uh, or ask you about, I should say, how did you come to know um, Mayor Richard Daly and um, get involved in, and this is something that you've done as far as giving back. In Chicago, you developed programs um, to help students find their own entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, it was one of, it's one of my favorite things to do and one of my greatest joys. But um, I, uh, Mayor Daly, when I had started my business and we had accomplished a certain, you know, we were on the eighth, uh, number eight on the Inc. 500, um, Again, I felt like I needed to give thanks to a lot of people for getting there, and I wanted Mayor Daly to know that I um, believed every resource he created, and they were his creations, the Chicagoland Entrepreneurial Center, and he supported the Women's Business Development Center. Um, I wanted him to know how they impacted me and my 40 employees and my 15,000 employees and my suppliers, and just said thanks in a letter. I never asked him for a thing. I, I offered. I said, if there's anything I can do to give back to the city, please let me know. Never thought I'd hear back from him again. And he re- his office reached out and said, the mayor would like to meet with you. And I said, okay, put me to work. How can I give back to the city? Because I have a, a debt to pay to the city. And he said, And I'm well, not busy at all. Yeah, I have nothing else to do. <laughs> um, I but I just do. knew that I had to balance that scale out a little bit. And yeah. he said, uh, he said, well, let me think about it. I'll get back to you. And then he called me and said, well, come be principal for a day at a school. I'm like, ugh, principal for a day? Like, I want to. Come I'm on. a terrible manager. Do you, know, you don't want yes, me to be. See, I'll make people cry. Like, do you know <laughs> what? These kids like, cry. Do you know what I could do? Like, pile it on. Give me some work. And I had no idea how big principal for a day was. I had no idea that he meant I was alongside him. He and I were principal for a day at the same school together, and that turned out to be cool. um, six years of he and I working together on one school that was his passion. Like he just he used this school as one of his. Um, benchmarks for all the other schools. It was one of the toughest schools in the Chicago public school system. And 
I learned so much about him. I learned so much about service. I say the city of Chicago made me an entrepreneur, but Mayor Daley made me a public servant because I saw him behind closed doors, uh, no press anywhere, being livid because the school scores weren't right or really just stressed out in asking people, to how do we make these schools better? I know that man uh, cared about those schools more than anyone else when there were issues in Chicago. He walked into the churches after a shooting and was there with the families. I mean, there I saw what he did and what he did to make that city so great. And um, so anyway, I challenged him one day in the meeting. I said, well, what can I do? And he's like, well, we got to get this out. I said, Mayor, Mr. Mayor, I cannot do that. What can I do? He said, well, get the business community more involved in the school. I said, done. So that was when I built a business planning class with one of the teachers, and I brought one corporation with me every month. And we had this class. Um, we did it for six years, and we taught business planning. So every, the, uh, the students built businesses. And this you know, is happening now in a lot of schools, but this was a while ago when it, we started it. And um, Yeah, what, what year? Do you know? Uh, that, I don't remember. 2010, maybe, okay. 320. Yeah, so mm-hmm. um, maybe before that. Anyway, uh, and the school is still doing it, which makes me really proud. And I, most of the students, uh, a lot of the students I worked with, I'm still very much in touch with, and oh, we're friends, awesome. and they're all, thri- you know, just so. They're all future entrepreneurs. Yes, yes. and, and it, it was so much fun to, uh, I'd never worked with children before. And these were high school kids, but I'd nev- I had no experience in that whatsoever. So I just showed up and was vulnerable and said, I don't know what I'm doing here, but we're going to do this. But I was once in high school. Yes, <laughs> and I was once, you know, in a life, a uh, 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 my life at one point was already written for me, and I wanted to have a different script. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my students could relate to that, right? And uh, wanted a different script for themselves, and saw entrepreneurship as their as their way out of um, their situation in in, in um, the neighborhoods they were in. And some of them had never ever been outside the neighborhood. So we got buses and took them out to the uh, corporations and showed them what life could be like as an entrepreneur. That's that's awesome. That's a great way to end this show. Great. Um, you're a dynamo. Oh, gosh. I thank you so this much for fun. coming you're in and joining me today and, so. and sharing your story this afternoon. And, and we'll be putting out all your contact information and Absolutely. all that good stuff. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Be sure to check out our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And have a great week. 